Welcome to Legally Green, the podcast on sustainability's formative effects on law. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast. Uh, I'm Robert, and I'm here in the studio today with my colleagues Hannah. Hi. And Zuzana. Hi. And we are excited to dive into another fascinating topic related to sustainability and the legal environment. But before we do, um, let's take a moment to recap our previous episode. So last time we delve into the concept of sustainable finance and discuss the pivotal role of finance in shaping a more sustainable future. Today, we're shifting gears to explore another crucial aspect of sustainability, um, so the so-called green revolution within the EU's transportation sector. We'll illustrate the significance of this green revolution for all of us and find out why sustainable transport is not just a buzzword, but an essential component of building a greener and more resource-efficient future. Absolutely. Throughout this episode, we'll be exploring various facets of sustainable transport, ranging from legal development to its effectiveness and the road ahead. So let's buckle up and embark on this exciting journey together. Yeah, in today's discussion, we'll address questions such as what exactly is the green revolution within the EU's transportation sector? Why is it so important for us to pay attention to it? And what are the legal developments that are driving this whole transformation? We also delve into the effectiveness of these measures and discuss some of the critical remarks to be made about sustainable transport. It's important to understand both the progress made and the challenges that we still have to face. And of course, we won't stop there. We'll explore the future plans of the EU, what they aim to develop, and what awaits us in the upcoming years. Plus, we'll discuss potential areas for improvement and offer our own predictions for the future of sustainable transport. So, whether you're passionate about sustainability, interested in legal developments, or simply curious about how the EU is revolutionizing transportation, this episode is for you. Rob, we're talking about sustainable transport, but I think we may all have diverging ideas about what that transport could encompass. What we'll be be talking about today? Yeah, uh, it is good to specify uh, what we'll be referring to when talking of transport in general, as this is obviously a very broad term encompassing various types of transportation in general. So transport refers um, to the movement of people, goods or information from one location to another. Um, This episode will be obviously limited to the means of physical transport. Uh, Most references will be made to road transportation, such as passenger cars, but also water transport and aviation. Okay, so now we know the scope of the term transport, but what exactly stands behind the term sustainable transport? What makes sustainable transport sustainable? Exactly. What is much more interesting is what indeed sustainable transport actually is. So, at its core, sustainable transport refers to transportation systems and practices that minimize environmental impact, promote social equity, and prioritize economic viability. So, sustainable transport encompasses various aspects, such as reducing emissions, enhancing energy efficiency, and prioritizing alternative modes of transportation. Um, It is important to emphasize that, in the end, the word sustainable will always be a hidden compromise between balancing our transport needs, which we all know are huge given the rapid globalization, growing world population and ever-increasing cross-border trade, and on the other hand, protecting the planet. 
Could you maybe provide us with some specific examples of sustainable transport? Yes, sure. Um, concrete examples of sustainable transport can include efficient public tra- public transportation system, uh, changes in the power units of vehicles, or, for instance, usage of alternative fuels. Uh, while these examples are primarily aimed at reducing carbon emissions, it's not just about that. Sustainable transport also has social and economic benefits. For instance, it creates jobs, reduces dependence on fossil fuels, and improves public health by minimizing pollution-related illnesses. Oh, that sounds like a lot of different aims. I assume that the employment benefits relate quite extensively to the production and conservation aspect of transport. Plus, of course, the employment in public transport or air or uh, maritime transport, where you need more qualifications. But this is a huge, a really huge goal to achieve environmental, social and economic sustainability. I think I'm getting plenty of thoughts here, so I want to hear more. Yeah, that's why let's dive into more specific aspects. Um, So the predominant aim of accelerating the development of sustainable transport was obviously to meet the new emission standards. So let's take a moment to dig deeper into this specific aspect and explain why should we care about sustainable transport in general. So talking of relevance of sustainable transport. Global carbon emissions in 2021 soared to 40 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide. It was a staggering tenfold increase compared to 1900. Um, The impact of transport in exacerbating CO2 pollution and accelerating the greenhouse effect cannot be denied. Uh, Transport stands out as the most fossil fuel dependent sector, responsible for around 37% of CO2 emissions from end-use sectors, um, uh, as statistics showed in 2021. In addition, NASA reports that the combined global land and ocean temperature rose by a remarkable 1 degree Celsius in the same year, a rate which was not seen in the last 10,000 years. And obviously, these alarming facts have understandably caused great concern among lawmakers, particularly those in the EU, who are striving to address these bleak prospects for our future. Sure, the EU has those environmental aims somewhere at the very centre of its legislation and policy making. Yet it is quite limited in their application due to the also limited legal basis in the treaties when it comes to the environment itself. It honestly feels like regardless of any EU green deals or other policies, we should be looking at other legislators, such as the member states themselves as well, to grasp the potential development of the policies. I agree with Susanna. Uh, We must not forget that the EU is party to a variety of international environmental agreements as well as uh, a member of international organisations and uh, it has taken on multiple international commitments that now shape its strategies across many fields. Uh, To give an example, the EU bodies have often directly referred to not only Um, the legally binding documents, but also the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, um, whenever they explain how they integrate their SDGs into their EU policy priorities. It is thus important to take any of those international instruments into account. Well, yes, definitely. Uh, And since you have mentioned a very important aspect, so the motivation of the legislators, Well, to fully get the idea of why and how this whole phenomenon of green revolution in the transportation sector came into existence, we need to go back specifically um, uh, to 2015. So this was the time when 
I guess the realization process concerning the seriousness of global climate change and the need for international cooperation to battle its dire consequences reached its climax during the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris. So the conference resulted in the historic Paris Agreement, a milestone in establishing international cooperation mechanisms which pursue the reduction of global CO2 emissions, and the EU, which ratified the, this international treaty with all its member states, obliged itself to undertake long-term actions aimed at reducing CO2 emissions to a minimum. So the Paris Agreement marked a turning point in the fight against global climate change. The international treaty accelerated the development of new EU policies and led to a well, what I would call a legislative trend prioritizing environmental goals. As a result, many legislative packages aimed at reducing the consequences of global climate change were introduced. Uh, indeed, in the previous episode, we have already discussed the EU action plan in the field of sustainable finance, uh, that is the action plan on financing sustainable growth and uh, development of a renewed sustainable finance strategy. Uh, as well as the new strategy for financing the transition to a sustainable economy. Have any similar initiatives been, been introduced in the area of sustainable transport? Yeah, could you maybe give some examples that would be really specifically relevant here in that topic? Yeah, sure. Uh, for instance, the Agenda Europe on the Move initiated the strategy for pursuing a low emission mobility plan for a single European transport area, it included the EESC's opinion on matters such as clean and energy efficient vehicles, as well as an action plan on alternative fuels infrastructure. And a significant part of the strategy was the Commission's proposal of a regulation aimed at imposing duties on car manufacturers to reduce their CO2 output by setting CO2 standards for new passenger cars and light vehicles, which then evolved into the regulation 2019 setting CO2 emission performance standards for new passenger cars and for new light commercial vehicles, being a controversial milestone in the EU sustainable transport sector. So I have already mentioned an important example of legal development in the EU sustainable transport sector. So let's spend some time on, the, on that to analyze in depth some of the key legal developments that are aimed at making a well significant difference. So one of them is that already mentioned Regulation 2019-631, which is a really good example of sustainable transport legislation because it is directly aimed at completely upsetting the level playing field for car manufacturers, and thus also directly altering the commercial freedom of individuals, since the car is the mode of transport we use most to commute on a daily basis. So what is this uh, regulation about? So. The regulation sets ambitious targets for reducing carbon dioxide emissions from vehicles within the European Union. Um, this regulation establishes specific limits on the average emissions allowed for new cars and vans sold within the EU register, to be precise. It aims to encourage um, automakers to produce more fuel-efficient vehicles with lower CO2 emissions. And, well, encouraging is a very subtle word as through its time frame, the regulation rather forces the manufacturers to decrease their average emissions of new passenger cars to meet these stringent targets. Uh, let me stop you there. What exactly is the relevance of the time frame for the regulation's strict enforcement? Uh, what about it and its application makes this legal instrument more stringent? Okay, so um, the regulation in question is special because it prescribes three separate periods during which different CO2 emission standards apply. 
This is significant since it implies that some parts of the regulation become inapplicable after a certain time lapse, making it self-adjusted to the moment, I would say. The first period has already started, on 1st January 2020, so at the exact moment the regulation became applicable. It will last until 1st January 2025. From 2025 to 2030, the average emission standard will become stricter by 15% compared to the one applicable now, and then from 2030 to 2035 by 55%, and from 2035 the EU has an ambitious plan of reducing it by 100%, thus reaching zero tailpipe emissions within the new passenger car fleet. Manufacturers are required to meet these targets or face penalties. If you think that, well, penalties are probably not, um, uh, but penalties are probably not serving considering um, the enormous wealth of the car industry, I might surprise you. Um, under Article 8 of this regulation, at the end of each year, the Commission is obliged to impose a so-called excess emission premium fine on the manufacturer, which exceeds the average CO2 emission standards. So the fine is calculated by basically multiplying the CO2 emission surplus by 95 euros and then by a number of newly uh, by the number of newly registered vehicles. Uh, right now, it is this well, period I have mentioned, 2020-2025, so the standard for the average emissions of new passenger cars is 95 grams um, of CO2 per kilometer. Uh, so suppose a car manufacturer X produces a passenger car fleet with an average of 100 CO2 per kilometer at the end of the year 2020, and 100,000 of these cars are registered. In that case, he will be obliged to pay a fine amounting to 37.5 million euros. So as you can see, even for the wealthiest car manufacturers, such fines are severe, since the more cars one produces, the harsher the fines become. Um, but let's talk about the effects of this regulation. Um, I actually had an opportunity to conduct a relatively short study for the purposes of research paper I have written, where I analyzed the impacts of this regulation on the change in the EU-wide fleet emissions per new passenger car. And guess what? On paper, it works. And it works even really well. In 2019, at the time of the introduction of the regulation, uh, the average CO2 emissions for new passenger cars amounted to 122 grams of CO2 per kilometer. In 2020, this figure fell to uh, 107.5 grams CO2 per kilometer. Therefore, therefore, in just one year, it decreased by 14.5 gram of CO2 per kilometer. This was a change that before 2010 took place at the rate of at least 10 years. In 2021, there was a transition from the new European driving cycle test to the World Harmonized Light Vehicles Test procedure, but these are just technicalities. However, it is important because that changed the point of reference and converted the limit of 95 grams of CO2 to equivalent 100, uh, 119. Um, and according to WLTP, in 2021, the average CO2 emissions values for um, passenger cars amounted to 115 grams, complying with the, well, quite significantly complying with the 119 gram of CO2 standard. Uh, still, what supports the claims that these improvements can be credited to the regulation? Aren't there many other external factors that could have contributed to the progress to an equal if not a greater degree? Well, um, the only factor I could think of is the environmental trend 
within the automotive market that could have caused manufacturers to produce less polluting cars on their own. But based on simple statistics, I doubt this is the reason. Other than that, the causation link between the regulation and the average CO2 emissions uh, per new passenger car is quite straightforward. The average CO2 emissions per new passenger car refers only to the cars newly registered in the EU, thus only the cars that are newly produced by manufacturers. Before the entry of the regulation, these average emissions did not change significantly, at least not in such a rapid way. And if they did, this was also predominantly caused by, inver uh, by environmental regulations. Um, moreover, most car manufacturers with, for example, Volkswagen or Mercedes on top, directly refer to the new emission standards regulation when they market their new sustainable vehicles. Uh, nevertheless, the question is, if the regulation is effective, according to what has been said, why shouldn't we take an even more extreme approach or just be, well, at least happy with the regulation we have? Yeah, it indeed uh, sounds quite intense. So I think your question is um, very justified. It sounds like a lot of burden put on the industry uh, itself. But considering these statistics and the causation you mentioned, it also sounds like a miracle solution to the issue of the CO2 emissions in transport. So I think it must have certain underlying issues somewhere there. Because it does sound uh, like money, you know, penalties, could convince anyone to accomplish anything in any time, even immediately. So uh, I would understand with you, yeah, let's just take a more extreme approach everywhere else, right? And then it is also surprising to see such action on the side of the uh, EU. So action that is actually burdening the industry, the lobby itself, uh, you know, so confidently against the industry's interest. Where is the hack then? <laughs> yeah, well... As I said, the regulation is now effective on the paper. And of course, this is a good sign. And if you match it with the trends in the car market, you can see that the regulation has forced manufacturers to move away from internal combustion engine technologies to mainly electric technology, forcing them also to restructure their new car fleet. And the changes within the new passenger car production aimed at compliance with the new standards contributed positively to the planned decrease in the average CO2 emissions levels per newly registered passenger car. Yet, I suppose that regulation does not escape criticism. What are the biggest controversies surrounding it? Exactly. Um, it's important to acknowledge that implementing such stringent standards does come with challenges and controversies. So, Firstly, automakers have had to invest heavily in research and development to meet these targets, which obviously affects production costs and Im uh, impacts pricing of environmentally friendly cars. Um, this is also important taking into account the current technologies that are still imperfect and often inferior to internal combustion engines in many respects, such as vehicle range. For instance, it is difficult to find an electric car that um, that on one charge will drive more than, I don't know, 400, 500 kilometers, which is still quite a lot for electric cars, whereas some well-balanced diesel engines can easily reach a range of 800, 1000 kilometers at least. So obviously it depends on the size of the fuel tank, it's, uh, etc. But, but you see my point. Um, why would I pay significantly more to buy a car that gives me relatively less than an old traditional combustion engine car? 
Um, in such a situation, the manufacturers need to strike a balance to comply with both new emission standards and market expectations that might be difficult to satisfy with this, these eco-technologies. And this comes therefore with additional costs, such as marketing costs and changing the target consumer group. Um, this is why striking a balance between environmental goals and the economic viability of the industry remains an ongoing discussion. So we're at a point where the EU's, EU's proposals seem to be some form of uh, encouragement, very sadly said, to the industry to put more efforts also to develop these so-called green technologies, right? Um, you know me well, so you know what I will say now. Isn't it, again, a trap of profit-based ideas that we may still and can still increase production and hope that it will not result in any adverse environmental impact? So we can still grow and grow and grow with no environmental impact. So switching from that combustion engines to electricity and then the hack. If the electricity is produced in coal-based energy plants, I think is not solving any issues whatsoever because they're still being produced and they still require a lot of energy that is still produced with a lot of adverse CO2 emissions as a side effect, right? Yes, and you touched um, the other even more serious point of critique, um, which is that the new technologies themselves uh, are not only perfect regarding their efficiency, as I have mentioned, but paradoxically also their supposed eco-friendly character. So to give a context, even though not the only one, the most advanced technology aimed at replacing combustion engines is indeed the electric one. Electric cars include technologies such as batteries, electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids will focus on on these technologies. Um, so let me start with perhaps the biggest criticism of electric vehicles as a replacement for internal combustion engine cars, namely the change in supply chain and the environmental and social impact of such a change. Um, the global supply chain for electric vehicle components, particularly battery materials, is very complex and involves sourcing materials from regions with, well, at least questionable labor and environmental standards. Um, there are serious concerns about unethical practices and labor rights violations in the mining of critical minerals required for battery production. I think the best example is cobalt. Um, according to The Guardian, uh, around 70% of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the way cobalt is mined uh, has been literally described as a modern slavery. Um, for long hours, workers that are paid less than 30 cents uh, pounds a day for their really hard physical work, which often involves hours of exposure to toxic fumes, must extract cobalt with almost their bare hands or sometimes with sticks and other makeshift materials. And the situation is similar for other materials, uh, sorry, minerals such as copper and lithium. Uh, I think that a possibility for at least a partial legislative fix here might be offered by the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Direct, that is the CSDD in an abbreviated form, um, which has been recently approved by the European Parliament. Uh, it introduces um, EU-wide supply chain rules and aims to oblige companies to carefully manage social and environmental impacts throughout the uh, supply chains. 
Based on the directive, the affected companies will have to identify actual or potential negative impacts on human rights um, and the environment, and then take appropriate measures to prevent, mitigate and remedy them. Uh, crucially, the due diligence obligations apply not only to an organization's own business activities or those of its subsidiaries, uh, but also to its direct and indirect suppliers. Mm. Nonetheless, uh, similarly to some of the sustainable finance related measures and uh, that we discussed in the previous episode, uh, the obligations under the directive currently would only apply to very large EU-based companies, those with more than 500 employees and a net turnover of more than 150 million euros. Uh, and in a more limited form to those employing more than 250 employees and with a turnover of 40 million euros. As a result, small, medium and micro enterprises are largely excluded. Would you say that this likely flaw, the fact that many smaller companies fall far below the threshold value uh, and will not be affected by the regulation, is a significant deficiency in the context of sustainable transport. Can the directive in its present form really reduce the social and environmental risks uh, connected with the global supply chains for the components of electronic vehicles? Well, this is a great question and um, and thanks for the input because I was actually unaware of such a legal development. And fortunately, in this context, uh, the companies responsible for manufacturing cars that could potentially source such materials in the way described above um, are usually large corporations that, well, quite easily exceed the threshold you, you have mentioned. Um, for example, uh, the largest manufacturers, such as, I don't know, the Volkswagen Group, which is known for some, well, eco scandals. Um, had a turnover of 20 billion euros in the first quarter of 2023 and employs 700,000 people worldwide. Um, although obviously this is an example of one of the biggest players, uh, many recognizable brands that have the biggest impact can boast similar profits and scale of their activities. Uh, activities. Um, so um, I'm actually worried about a certain uh, issue here, the fact that, well, what was the reason uh, of sourcing these materials in such a way? Well, obviously, reducing costs. So I'm wondering whether this will impact the costs any further, for example, making the eco cars even more expensive. But obviously, that's that's a thing for another um, discussion. However, well, it is clear that such extraction can have serious consequences for local communities, violating their human and labor rights. Um, but this is more about the social consequences. So, but I also mentioned the environmental ones. So what about them? Um, well, the process of extraction also has negative environmental consequences, including habitat destruction, water pollution, and well, paradoxically, carbon emissions. And um, these dire consequences are not included in, well, for example, this WLTP test, um, nor anywhere in the regulation. So how can we really assess the real change in CO2 impact? Well, does it sound bad? Well, then sorry, but I have prepared much more. Um, so now let's focus on the products that have already been created, so the electric vehicles. 
Um, I have already mentioned that one of the criticisms of electric vehicles is their, for instance, limited range compared to traditional combustion engine vehicles, as well as the length of time it takes to charge them compared to the time it takes to refuel a car, which is obviously uh, also a logical implication. Um, but this is not the only drawback. Mm, another issue is the charging infrastructure. So the availability and accessibility of charging infrastructure, especially in certain regions or urban areas, can be a serious barrier to widespread EV adoption. Um, if we want to develop the infrastructure, which will be, well, inevitable, think of the scale of such an undertaking, the amount of carbon emissions required and the impact on the natural habitat, which again is not taken into account at any point in assessing the environmental impact of new passenger cars. Another problem is that we still don't know much about the durability of electric batteries. Uh, the current estimates of uh, manufacturers uh, point at a durability of between 100 to 200,000 um, uh, miles. And this is not a bad prediction, as many new internal combustion engine, uh, engines show a similar one. However, Every motorization enthusiast will immediately immediately say that it is not rare for an average, well, well-manufactured diesel engine to easily last for more than 500,000 miles without any major repairs. Um, but why am I talking about durability? Why is it so important besides the fact that it's simply convenient for the user of a vehicle and cheaper as a replacement of engine or batteries is obviously expensive? The reason for that lies within the interconnection of durability to the matter of dispos uh, disposability, and uh, that is where the electric vehicles become even more controversial. So, what happens when an internal combustion engine needs to be disposed of? Well, most internal combustion engine components are recyclable to some extent. Um, materials such as iron, steel, aluminum and copper, which make up the engine block, um, cylinder heads, pistons and other parts, can be recycled. The recycling process involves dismantling the engine, separating, separating the various materials and then sending them to appropriate recycling facilities. Heard this does not seem simple and risk-free at all. How are the batteries from electric vehicles disposed of? Yes, so what happens with a lithium-ion battery uh, that needs to be disposed of? Well, it is important to note that EV batteries are also recyclable. Uh, the recycling process involves dismantling the battery pack, sorting the materials, and then using various te techniques to recover the valuable meat and metals. Mm, however, these techniques are much more complex, much more expensive, and most importantly, produce a lot of waste and emit greenhouse gases. In addition, not all components can be recycled and many toxic elements heavily contaminate the landfills where such batteries are dumped. Um, this is a significant problem at the time when electric vehicles account for only 13% of all vehicles on the world's roads. So think of a situation where the EU is leading the way, where this, where this share will reach at least 55% in the next 10 years. Um, it would be unfair However, not to mention the fact that the EU undertook concrete steps to address this issue. Uh, on 9th December 2022, the Commission, Parliament and Council um, reached an agreement on the final text of the new European Battery Regulation, published in June 2023. Uh, so it's already applicable. 
Um, the regulation focuses on the sustainable production, use and disposal of batteries, supporting the development and adoption of electric vehicle batteries uh, with improved environmental performance. And what is important in our context is that for the first time, the new requirements will cover the entire lithium battery life cycle. So from the extraction of the raw materials to production, design, labeling, traceability, collection, recycling, and then reuse. Thus, it is quite uplifting that this matter was not left unanswered and it creates hope for more sustainable development of electric technologies. Um, but finally, I would also like to mention one more point of critiques, one uh, very strong argument, so which was already mentioned by Zuza actually. So the carbon footprint of electricity generation. So while electric vehicles indeed produce zero tailpipe emissions, um, the environmental benefits depend on the source of electricity used for charging. So if the electricity comes from fossil fuel fired power plants, the overall carbon footprint of electric vehicles may not be significantly different from that of conventional vehicles. In Poland, for instance, 76% of all energy comes from coal mines. So what does it matter if we drive a nice fancy electric car if the electricity that powers it was generated by burning the coal and contributes even more to CO2 emissions than driving a car with an internal combustion engine? Why then, instead of first ensuring energy stability within the framework of renewable energy sources, do we focus so much on restricting the market for combustion engine cars and the individual freedom of choice of EU consumers? Um, I would like to remind you that the road transportation sector runs for, um, um, sorry, accounts for about 7% of total global CO2 emissions. And this implies that less than 1% uh, from the EU perspective. So given the relatively small scale why is the EU so focused on restricting our freedoms in this sector instead of focusing on more influential ones? You know, I'm very happy you mentioned Poland and 76% of electricity coming from, uh, from well, coal-based uh, energy plants. You know, it's, it's easier to restrict uh, individual freedoms uh, than to actually cover uh, a certain issue on the, on the wider scale. The individualist approach to the environmental um, and social, you know, for that matter, issues is less of a burden for the government and for the EU itself. Um, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode. Our EU-based system of environmental protection is to a large extent really a prolongation of the property or, in the very best result, a human rights-based uh, system that we've got here. So you either should not destroy something because it belongs to someone or because you'd harm that person or because we have some other person whose human rights, such as life, uh, would be compromised by the actions. And that you already hear in my, um, in my part here is about an individual harming a person. So regulating industries is incredibly difficult because you can't really blame one person on the, or one company for the global devastation of a habitat. And then regulating societies and changing societal behaviors is probably even more difficult. How do you make everyone get rid of a car if they don't really have an alternative that they could use? And we also have open borders and we have internal markets. So how do you make that market work 
on the territory of over 4 million square kilometers without huge industrial transport. I doubt you can. I think you cannot. Not in the way that we have it now, not that efficiently, not that comfortably. And most people are very, very unwilling to make uncomfortable changes. To travel from one part of the EU right now, be it Finland, to the very other, let's take Portugal, by a plane, not even five hours. And that's around 100 euros in the holiday season, and it's even less during the year. So why would you give up on that opportunity to make a lot of money as in the industry, and then also as an individual to save plenty of time and save plenty of money by restricting that transport? It doesn't make sense. It's a lot easier to tell everyday people, lower and middle class, to take a bus or ride a bike every day to work or buy an electric car that they most likely cannot afford and will not do that. It doesn't really change much, but it makes everyone feel like they're making a change. And it's not really uncomfortable enough to make anyone upset or revolt. And you're not really saying no to the car industry or the transport industry. Otherwise, you don't have to ensure that people have alternative means of transport. They still can have a car, just not the one that they can afford, as I say. So we're putting really guilt onto people for not making the right choices that they have. The industry produces electric cars. Why not buy these? Um, and this is unfair because, as we say, first of all, we have the uh, coal industry and the energy plants industry that is not covered by this regulation at all. And I also think this is why the EU focuses so much on the consumers because of that ease of doing that without really uh, reducing profit too much. And legally, it's also easier because the EU has an extensive set of legal bases that allow the consumer protection that they can invoke here or the consumer interest to be advanced. And it's easier, it's an easier procedure um, to say that these regulations protect consumers from adverse effects of CO2 emissions, that they are proportionate to the aim and they respect environmental goals somewhere in the meantime, than it would be to actually target industries or target environment and make supranational sustainable transport coordination a priority here. Yes, well, I love what you have said, especially this 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 whole commentary on um, on this artificial feeling of of doing actually a change instead of actually making one due to uh, the aspects we have covered. So yeah, it was a very valuable input. So thanks for that. Um, uh, fortunately, however, um, it is not just the car sector that is being reformed, and some other more influential in terms of CO two contribution sectors. Um, have also got the EU's attention, so that's also worth noting. Which sectors do you have in mind? I suppose aviation and shipping are likely candidates, if my memory serves me well, and the two sectors are the two fastest growing sources of emissions that contribute to climate change. Yes, exactly. You are uh, you are you are hundred percent right, and indeed, a good example is the aviation sector. So uh, and the EU's refuel aviation initiative. So let's start with that. Um, so basically, the Refuel Aviation Initiative is a major effort within the EU to reduce emissions from the aviation sector and promote the use of um, sustainable aviation fuels, so so-called SAFs, uh, which I will be referring to. Um, so the primary objective of the Refuel Aviation Initiative is to support the development of, uh, and deployment of SAFs um, as an alternative to, the, to traditional fossil fuels in aviation. Uh, produced from renewable resources such as biomass, waste and synthetic processes, SAF have the potential to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions compared to conventional jet fuels. 
Um, one of the key features is the introduction of the so-called SAF blending mandate. Um, the EU intends to introduce a blending mandate for SAFs, which would require airlines to use a certain percentage of SAFs in their total fuel consumption. Um, this blending mandate is intended to stimulate demand for SAF and promote their commercial viability. Um, I intend to establish a regulatory um, framework for a regulation that will, uh, the EU, sorry, intend to establish a regulatory framework for a regulation that will address issues related to feedstock sustainability, certification, and the integration of SAFs into the existing fuel infrastructure. Um, as this is only an initiative, there is no point in going into too much detail, but it is clear that it has already uh, come in for quite a lot of criticism. Um, a major criticism is the limited scale and availability of SAFs themselves. Um, currently, the production capacity of SAFs is relatively small compared to the demand from the aviation industry. Um, scaling up SAF production to meet the needs of the sector will require significant investment and advances in production technologies. In addition, some critics uh, argue that the technology for producing SAFs is not yet fully mature and question the extent to which SAFs can truly deliver substantial emissions reductions in the aviation sector. Um, while SAFs have the potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, their overall impact uh, may be limited when considering the full life cycle emissions, including the feedstock production, conversion processes and transport. Uh, the situation is similar to the change in electric vehicle supply chains discussed earlier. I think it indeed uh, resembles very well the situation in the road transport we've just discussed. It's basically a shift from one to another type of um, production uh, and fueling without uh, actual limitation of that production. I may again sound very radical here. But I tend to look towards that degrowth movement uh, for inspiration. And degrowth is basically a decision that after a certain level of economic development in terms of GDP, there is no need. And it is even ill-advised to continue that economic growth. Uh, that increasing production, increasing consumption is not the way to live sustainably, sustainably under any circumstances. So rather than changing the methods of production and the type of fuel, maybe we could go into a direction of limitations of the, of the aviation transport and self. Are there any alternatives to that? Or um, is it even viable uh, to limit aviation transport? But these are, you know, just big questions to, to be left here, still in the, this level of initiatives only when it comes to legislation. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I will not answer these questions because indeed, uh, these are questions that we need to reflect more. I will also leave it to our listeners to, to, to reflect on that. Um, as obviously there are no right answers. Obviously, if there were right answers, I think the EU legislators will, uh, would already, um, come up with some, uh, some better solutions. Um, but since we still have some time, I also wanted to touch upon another important development, uh, which is fuel EU maritime. Um, so its objectives are very similar to the um, to those of the aviation sector, uh, and the main objective again of this initiative um, is to accelerate the introduction of sustainable alternative fuels in the maritime sector, including shipping and inland waterway transport. Uh, 
Recently, what is um, interesting, the initiative has reached an important stage because on uh, 23rd March, the Parliament and the Council reached a provisional agreement on the text of the new legislation, which now needs to be formally approved by both institutions. Um, however, as with aviation fuel, this has been met with criticism, again, that it does not go far enough and that it is not realistic as alternative fuels are not sufficiently developed to effectively replace those already in use, which um, which I have also pointed out uh, in the aviation uh, uh, part. Here I think I could uh, finally agree with you. Lack of possibilities of compliance with the law, a law that is virtually impossible, uh, is sometimes taken as far in legal philosophy as to call such law no law. Uh, so that is the Fuller's view, by the way, if anyone's interested or at least a law that is very flawed. So expecting the industry to comply with the law without actual chance for that is a perfect example of that law, I think. Well, exactly, exactly. But we'll see how it will level up. I, I think it's good that the EU comes up with these those initiatives. We can see on the example of um, the car industry that it can effectively force and encourage uh, manufacturers to indeed make some change within uh, within their production sector. It comes with drawbacks, with flaws, we have also discussed that, but still, indeed, at least on paper, at least in terms of these um, uh, tailpipe emissions, it works. So, so so, maybe here it will be similar, or I hope, learned on those flaws of car regulation, it will be better and it will be solved also better, and the criticism will be addressed better by the EU. Um, so as you can see, the EU has set ambitious targets for the development of sustainable transport across different transport modes, including road, air and sea. Um, this includes promoting the use of low emission vehicles, uh, improving infrastructure for alternative fuels and investing in sustainable transport solutions. Uh, we have already mentioned some concrete examples of projects that are well in progress, such as the EU battery regulation, refuel aviation or fuel EU maritime. However, it would be unfair not to spend at least a few minutes more on some of the other projects and plans of the EU to improve transport and make it more sustainable, especially after the rather extensive discussion we had on the criticism of some of the measures taken by the EU. Um, so I also wanted to talk about one example, uh, which is the Clean Vehicle Directive, which I actually personally really like, uh, which promotes the use of clean vehicles in public procurement. Uh, so according to the EU Commission, the directive mainly defines clean vehicles and um, sets national targets for their public procurement. It applies, to, it applies to different types of public procurement, including purchases, leases, rentals and related services contracts. Um, and in my view, this is a much wiser and more balanced approach um, in line with the principle of subsidiarity and above all proportionality, especially compared to the regulation on standards for new passenger cars we have talked about. Um, so it is not without its shortcomings. And for instance, I was struck by uh, I was struck by the fact that a clean vehicle is also one that runs on natural gas, um, uh, which obviously is quite controversial as, um, well, the fact that they use promoting natural gas-powered vehicles in the light of the current developments in the Ukraine, obviously caused by the aggression of Russia, um, um, is indeed controversial because of our continuing dependence on Russia for the import of this natural resource. So why would we still treat 
natural gas-powered vehicles um, as sustainable instead of getting green, rid of them. Um, nevertheless, promoting, modernizing, and investing in sustainable public transport is something I strongly support, and I wish the EU would put as much effort into making it effective as it does with um, the regulation 2019-631, so the one about new passenger cars emission standards. You've touched upon a very interesting topic. Um, how are the measures we have discussed affected by the energy crisis and the attempts to reduce the EU's reliance on Russian oil and gas? Around 20% of Europe's electricity grid is powered by natural gas, out of which 40% used to be imported from Russia and is almost completely cut off now. Um, where else and how to the objectives of safeguarding energy security on the one hand and uh, the efforts to develop sustainable transport on the other hand um, clash. I would also expect there to be areas where the objectives align instead. Could some of the emergency measures in response to the energy crisis take the form of or simply be aided by long-term fixes in the transport sector? Mm -hmm. Well, um, this is a great question. It is a very complex and difficult question, and I do not feel like being an expert enough to uh, to actually answer it. Uh, however, from my point of view, I can answer it using the developments with, well, the regulation 2019-631, so the one about new passenger cars, as I, I, I indeed gained some knowledge about it. Um, so you see... Um, the very ambitious plans to get rid of the registration of new cars with internal combustion engines by 2035 um, was a development that was actually recently added to the regulation uh, because it was amended this year where, where such change was added. Um, and the reason for it, according to the EU, is, well, simply to accelerate the reduction, which is obviously in line with environmental policies. However, a crucial, a crucial implication of such changes is also the fact that by getting rid of oiled fuel cars, because I also want to remind you that we import a lot of oil uh, from, we, at least we were importing a lot of oil from Russia, um, we also reduce our dependence on large oil exporters and also secure the EU-wide energy sector in general. Um, the ideal plan assumes that for instance, new natural gas vehicles will also disappear from our roads, our roads, sorry, um, as they are not considered sustainable under the regulation in question. Um, it was therefore surprising to me that such vehicles are considered clean in the Clean Vehicles Directive. However, the use action are not only aimed at having a positive impact on the environment, but also at increasing energy security, given the EU's dependence on external energy resources often supplied by states that are far um, uh, far away from our understanding of, for example, well, human rights. Um, however, you also mentioned our um, dependency on energy, uh, on, on electricity specifically. Well, obviously, that's something that you address um, uh, by, by actually enhancing the whole um, renewable energy sector and the fact that actually you is striving towards uh, being more independent also in terms of electricity from from external uh, parties. Um, so that's also crucial here. Um, also an important development, also recently approved by the parliament, is the revision of the directive on the infrastructure for the use of alternative fuels. Um, because in the previous part of this episode, I was quite critical of the fact that the EU's infrastructure is simply not prepared and developed enough to revolutionize the automotive industry. 
uh, but also air and water transport. I stand by that view, but that doesn't mean that the EU hasn't taken steps to address this problem. Uh, in the European Green Deal legislative package, one of the components was the revision of the existing Alternative Fuels Infrastructure Directive of 2020, uh, to, sorry, 2014. Um, the main aim of this directive is to create a harmonized and efficient network of refueling and charging stations to support the wider use of alternative fuels. Um, the revision of this directive aims to convert it into the regulation, so thus ensure direct applicability and exclude the discretion of member states to transpose their rules into their national legal systems on their own, um, which was basically motivated by the need for faster and swifter adoption of the changes set out by the codification, on top of, on top of the fact that demand for such a change arose with new ambitious Fit for 55 plans uh, that we have also covered to an extent. Um, in the proposal, the Commission set a number of mandatory national targets for the deployment of alternative fuels infrastructure in the EU for road vehicles, vessels and stationary aircraft, um, it also sets stricter targets for the number of publicly accessible electric vehicle charging points, hydrogen refuel stations, uh, refueling stations, and natural gas refueling stations in member states. Um, and I think it is good that the Commission is pushing these incentives because it is necessary, as we have seen. But of course, the question is, at what cost? I'm not talking about the financial cost, but also the environmental one. Uh, obviously, as I have mentioned, the creation of such a massive infra infrastructure mandated by the EU to member states forces them to build very expensive infrastructure that will consume a huge amount of resources and create a significant carbon footprint and most likely will be built only to meet minimum standards as it usually is. Um, it also creates the possibility of greenwashing, a concept we have covered in the last episode so I invite you to listen to it as the direct, um, um, because yeah, we have covered it quite in depth last time. Um, um, yes, because the directive and most likely the future regulation encourages member states to establish appropriate fun financial incentives and support mechanisms to facilitate the deployment of alternative fuel infrastructure. Um, this may include funding programs, grants, tax incentives and public-private partnerships. Um, on the other hand, it will not be possible to achieve any degree of sustainability in transport without such changes. Yes, I can see how promoting the wider use of alternative fuels is capital intensive and thus requires incentives for the market participants to invest capital in the industry. Uh, I do believe that the EU sustainable finance framework and how it incorporates the sustainability considerations uh, and the financial decision-making has uh, the potential to channel private investment into the transition to a more sustainable transport industry. Uh, actually, seeing the size of the necessary expenses, uh, such a transition towards sustainable transport seems impossible without properly engaging the financial sector. Uh, naturally, I also agree with you that this must go hand in hand with the measures to prevent greenwashing, which is exactly what the taxonomy aims to do. Uh, one can already observe large uh, automotive companies such as Audi or Volkswagen reporting in detail on the uh, taxonomy alignment on the individual websites, uh, and thus 
demonstrating the practical applications of the taxonomy's criteria and the unity and consistency and labeling that it is supposed to bring. Mm. I have also looked into how far developed the taxonomy's coverage of the transport industry is, um, especially the sectors we have talked less about today than the car industry, that is VA and maritime transport. Uh, as of now, that is June 2023, the European Commission has already established technical screening criteria applicable to the maritime transport industry that determine whether or not investments are sustainable. Uh, when it comes to aviation, its inclusion under the taxonomy was proposed in a leaked EU Commission draft delegated act. Uh, however, there is a controversy around the fact that a significant share of aircraft already uh, complies with the proposed EU taxonomy criteria, which casts doubt on whether the inclusion of these activities will really incentivize financing towards the development of sustainable aircraft and uh, jet fuel. I think I stand with both of you here uh, that such changes are so much needed and uh, that also such preventive measures are needed. But then I also uh, must agree with Han. I think we need to also remember to check whether these um, changes, these proposals are uh, working in practice in the sense of actually incentivizing this environmental development or the sustainability uh, changes. So even in, on paper, the, looks, the legislation looks really progressive or even to, to some uh, radical remembering the strong opposition against the New Deal, uh, even by, by the biggest EU countries such as uh, Germany. Um, but is it so radical then in practice if it still, as, as we can see, either focuses too much on, on growing still uh, or does not really incentivize uh, such a radical change? But I think uh, that is left only to the future uh, to tell and not to us. Definitely. And talking of future, um, I think uh, we can proceed to the section when we will share our predictions for futures and our conclusions based on, on the discussion we had. Because, well, we have gone through the legislative status quo as well as the future plans of the EU uh, to develop the concept of sustainable transport and thus pursue this green revolution. Um, I have mentioned at the very beginning, which, which titles our, our episode. Um, and on this basis, I would like to enter into a discussion with you uh, on how you think uh, the future of sustainable transport will develop and based on our analysis, what legislators should take into account when developing this sector. Yeah, I'm always up to having a knowledge-based discussion and uh, spamming with uh, case studies. Uh, so let me introduce you to a case study of uh, a member state law, a Spanish sustainable mobility law from 2021 which I think could be an inspiration to many other states and maybe even could be an interesting point of reference for the EU itself. So that is recognition of mobility as a right. So the Spanish found right to mobility. For instance, the draft law sets an obligation for companies with over 500 workers to have a sustainable transport plan. And why is that so interesting? Because it's a paradigm shift that we see lacking in the EU from everyone has the privilege to have some means of transportation and then everyone should have a duty to take care about to make that transportation as sustainable as they can. For instance, choose your bike, not a car. Here in that 
Spanish law, um, the corporations themselves uh, have that aid, have that duty to aid people to get to that um, sustainable uh, transport. Thus, this law recognizes that transport is essential for proper social functioning. And that also includes that the state has a duty to render that transport possible. And then on top of that, not only should the state enable the citizens to be able to move, but then to also make that mobility right as sustainable as possible. I think that's very smart. And I know it's uh, shocking, but sometimes um, transport-related social exclusion is uh, a huge issue. And it's a huge issue nowadays um, in many parts of the EU itself. That's why this law is so important, I think. So um, in Poland, 48 million um, population, 30 million people are socially excluded due to lack of proper transport capabilities. And this is one third of a whole state, one of the biggest states of the EU. And if we include in our definition of sustainability, also that social sustainability, which we have been doing and which the EU does itself, then the future of sustainable um, transportation should not only be about a green or not green fuel, but also how to make use of that um, green infrastructure, green production, green fuel, to make people enjoy also that social inclusion on equitable terms. And I think the Spanish law nails it very well, but it's still only um, kind of in the process of implementation, so we don't know whether it worked in practice. And I think EU institutions can really play a very important role in social um, inclusion, which is from the European Parliament's uh, studies themselves. The EU institutions can play a coordination role uh, in transport policies also on the basis of Article 9 of the Treaty and the Functioning of the European Union. So the prevention and combating of social exclusion are the leading principles of the EU law right now. Legislation may require accessibility uh, to be considered in transport regulation and EU standards could become mandatory when European funds are being used, um, as in the case of the structural funds, where legal requirements include accessibility as a non-negotiable condition of funding. So EU programs for innovation in the transport system, such as the Horizon 2020, could prioritize EU funding to uh, transport-related research projects aimed at enhancing transport accessibility, thus then solving the uh, exclusion to some extent. And on top of that, considering Articles 191 and 192 of the TFEU, the EU, in all of the above um, issues, discussions and initiatives, would still have to consider the environmental interest in the first place. And I think radical action, such as the uh, fine schemes presented in the regulation discussed today, um, is is one of the answers that they have um, obviously to choose from. Um, but I do agree, maybe addressing also the production schemes or for sure addressing the production schemes and thinking about the cost, the financial cost, environmental, social cost of radical transitions um, is very important. And we should also consider whether transitions are enough to prevent adverse consequences of globalization and increased connectivity in Europe. I am optimistic and believe that the EU is indeed capable of building a competitive, sustainable transport system that will help us transition towards a more climate neutral and climate resilient economy while uh, simultaneously increasing mobility as well as fueling growth and uh, employment. However, to do so, it will definitely uh, be necessary to engage not only 
transport users, but also the entire transport industry, which is facing drastic structural changes, changes that are simply uh, simply necessary. Still, we must keep in mind uh, the energy crisis, which is why I hope that any emergency measures taken in this context, as well as any future developments in the regulation of the transport sector, will only reduce Europe's dependency on imported oil and gas. Finally, I also pin a lot of hopes on the technological innovations and how they may ease the transition to clean, safe and efficient travel throughout Europe. Yes, I I totally agree. Uh, And well, in my opinion, well, definitely as we look to the future of um, sustainable transport, well, it is clear to me that legislators will continue to play a key role in uh, shaping the regulatory framework to support and accelerate the transition to greener um, transport systems, but to effectively address uh, the challenges and seize the opportunities ahead, well, legislators should consider several key aspects. Um, First and foremost, in my opinion, a holistic approach is essential, taking into account the entire life cycle of transport, from production to end of life disposal. And the EU is doing that, so it's good. However, in my opinion, it should have done this at the very beginning of implementing any radical changes we have mentioned. Um, And this includes robust regulations that encourage the sustainable sourcing of raw materials, promote circular economy principles and ensure proper recycling and disposal mechanisms for vehicle components and batteries, as we identified as one of the principal concerns in in transitioning to to alternative fueled uh, vehicles. Um, It should also include the inclusion of the external carbon footprint of the whole production process when assessing the environmental impact of certain types of technology. So, for instance, creating batteries uh, or um, their CO2 emissions on um, taking out their disposability. Um, So, yeah, and I, I am aware that this would be an incredibly difficult challenge and as it is extremely difficult to objectively quantify um, the whole production process but I really believe that it is essential uh, to objectively assess the real environmental impact of new policies and to take decisions that are truly in line with sustainable development. I cannot disagree with you. I would like to say let's just abandon transport and all take trains and bikes everywhere but uh I don't think this is possible. I think this is too much of a cost right now. Um, And there is infrastructure for cars. Sorry. And there are cars now. So maybe we can use these and use them the best we can, the most sustainably we can, and then think about the future with a very wide perspective. Um, Maybe where we can aim, we should aim at collective transport and such that will be inclusive. But where this is not viable, we should really think uh, green full on uh, even or maybe especially uh, if that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Exactly. And I think it concludes our uh, discussion really well. And thank you for joining me. Thank you for sharing um, these really valuable opinions, very valuable observations as well. Um, so, so yeah, I hope the listeners also enjoyed listening to us today. Um, um, if you did, then make sure to observe us on our on your favorite podcast platform. Um, and well, I hope we will hear each other soon. Um, and it was a pleasure. So thank you, and bye.
Bye, bye. Bye.